Today is Sunday, December 4th, 2022. And we're smack in the middle of what is often called the season of giving. Um, but it also can be called the season of excess. And what I mean by that is a time of year when we're especially likely to be confronted by our cravings, our desires in the pursuit of pleasurable things and experiences. Recently, I came across um, a blog about minimalist living and this is how the, the writer put it, describing this time of year. Halloween is followed by Thanksgiving, is followed by Black Friday, is followed by Cyber Monday, is followed by Christmas, is followed by New Year's Eve. And also we can throw in there Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, although those traditions aren't nearly as commercialized as Christmas. And, and this holiday season, um, as always, is, it's, it is this wonderful opportunity on the one hand to connect and reconnect with family and friends and simply enjoy being together, enjoy shared traditions and just the splendor of the season, the displays of lights during this uh, very dark time of year, the decorations, just the whole energy of celebration. And yet, um, we live in a consumer culture uh, and that can entice us to overindulge our time, our money, our energy into socializing, eating, drinking, shopping. And we can also find ourselves feeling stressed and anxious, especially if we are traveling somewhere by plane or hosting a gathering, trying to navigate family and extended family conflicts, workplace conflicts too. And then also this, this time of year, we can feel profound loss, missing a loved one. And then there's the overload. As I mentioned the commercialization of Christmas, the overload of Chris, Christmassy sights and sounds that are hard, hard to avoid. Shops, restaurants, parks, gyms, uh, any public space. And that can leave us feeling annoyed and agitated. Perhaps uh, we might be inclined to get really cynical about it. Um, and especially if it's not a tradition that we happen to celebrate. There are studies that show that um, there's a notable increase in depression and anxiety this time of year. Feelings of loneliness, despair, 
And here we have all these advertisements who are that are telling us, you know, it's not just advertisements, it's movies and social media, all telling us that this is the most wonderful time of the year. And by the time, by the time we get to New Year's, after all the excesses, after trying to weather this perfect storm that can cause us to slide back into old habits, uh, old thought patterns, even dropping our sitting practice. After all that, by the time we get to New Year's, we might be racked by guilt, regret, resentment, disappointment, and of course, this can happen any time of year. We can be racked by these kinds of thoughts and feelings, but it just it does seem to be amplified during the holiday holidays. Recently, I came upon a book that I found in the center's uh, donations area, which is a great place to shop, by the way. <laughs> found many good things there. Um, the, the title of the book is Hooked, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire, and the Urge to Consume, edited by Stephanie Kaza. And it's a, it's a collection of essays by, by some of them are teachers, others practitioners, scholars, and um, it explores the human tendency especially in this part of the world, to pursue pleasure and happiness outside ourselves, in things, in stuff, in the possession of material objects, but also the acquisition of experiences, the way we can pursue thrills and adventures, a new romance, a new job, something more exciting, uh, even traveling and moving to a new place or a new neighborhood, you know, anything that can um, pull us out of um, this feeling that our life is kind of drab. And each one of us is complicit to one degree or another in um, sustaining a culture of consumption. Again, turning outward and finding happiness in stuff. You know, we, we humans have always had to consume things in order to uh, c cover the bare necessities of life. Consumption is not inherently bad. We need, you know, we need to eat. We need a place to sleep. Um, and uh, you know, we often, most of us work, we have jobs in order to um, attain those bare, bare necessities that, that we need. Um, but it wasn't until the early 20th century where consumption turned into this mass phenomenon, into this uh, cultural norm where it was tied with uh, personal fulfillment and progress. And it was in timing with the 
industrial revolution and the uh, capacity for mass production. You know, old values of frugality and thrift were replaced with the value of progress, and it was measured by and is measured by an endless array of consumer choices and the expectation that re we replace old things with new and better things, um, even when those old things work just fine. And so we've become socially conditioned um, to, to find pleasure and satisfaction through things, through stuff. And this is part of the terrain of Zen practice for us. How do we work with our cravings, the things we want, that wanting mind? I wanna read a snippet from the foreword of this book, this collection of essays titled Hooked. And uh, the foreword is by Paul Hawken, who's a prominent writer and activist, and he provides a socioeconomic and uh, environmental perspective on our impulse to consume. He says, until recently, most cultures, most cultures and religions honored frugality and cautioned against excess. No longer. Western consumer society, the de facto global culture, is unique in all of history because underlying it is the highly developed consumption-based science called economics. It could even be called a science of voraciousness because at its root is the belief that in order for nations to prosper, our desires must expand without limit and grown they have. In the US, there are 45,000 shopping malls employing 10.7 million people. Okay, now this book was published in 2005 so we have certainly far fewer shopping malls. They've closed, most, many of them. And in place of that, we have you know, this whole infrastructure of online purchases. And um, along with that, uh, uh, an increase in employment at so-called fulfillment centers. Um, and then there's this big shipping and delivery infrastructure. He continues, the average American family of four metabolizes four million pounds of material every year to support their lifestyle. That's 11,000 pounds a day, 7.5 pounds a minute. This keeps us busy. Yet we are heedless because we don't see most of that consumption. It is offshore and in mines, stockyards, slag heaps, landfills, and wastewater treatment plants. Billowing gases migrate to the stratosphere and double glaze the planet on behalf of us all. The constant expansion of desire and material goods forms our current definition 
of a healthy economy. Actually, you know, one of the, the things that attracted me to the Zen Center when I did a workshop some 20 or more years ago was the, the emphasis on mindfulness as it relates to not wasting and to minimizing harm, whether it's to the people or the planet. And here's an example in, in, in the kitchen on a given day. You know, when we're um, preparing and serving food, we try to do so without, without wasting anything. And that means taking the time to carefully scrape out pots and pans, a jelly jar with a rubber spatula. So we're not throwing away um, anything um, that we shouldn't be or that, you know, that is unnecessary to throw away. And I have fond memories and I really miss already Bowdoin Roshi walking into the kitchen, checking us out, making sure that we are sufficiently scraping uh, those pots and pans um, so as not to waste and demonstrating too um, himself how to do it. Um, now that falls on John Sensei myself <laughs> and and on the one hand this might seem like a trivial thing you know oh, scraping out a, a bowl um, on the other hand um, you know in the context of the training pro program it's one of many ways that we we learn how to integrate our practice into daily activity and and, and our aspiration um, to do no harm to do good. And in general, actually being in the training program is this opportunity to, to live more simply, uh, reducing all the stuff that can distract us and, and then benefiting from having the mutual support of others, communal living and sitting. Not everyone's in a position um, to do the training program even for a short stint. Um, but you can get a taste of that um, simply by volunteering at the center for a few hours or, or, or a day um, and, and experience that, uh, that practice off the mat. Okay, back to, back to Paul Hawken. He continues. In the Buddhist canon, there are six mind states or realms, one of which is called the hungry ghost, depicted as a craven figure with a protuberant stomach and a long pencil neck, a maundering wraith unable to satisfy its insatiable desires. In this realm, attempts to avoid pain by seeking satisfaction cause more pain for oneself and others. It's a useful metaphor reminding us of the compulsive shopper, the sports addict, the speculator, the megalithic global corporation hooking poor children around the world on fast food and hip hop. I don't know about hip hop, I kind of like it myself. 
Um, but the, the important point here is that um, our, our constant attempts to fulfill our cravings, our search for happiness through consumption of things, only causes suffering, both on an individual and a collective level. The problem that we encounter over and over again is that getting new, more, and better stuff only brings us temporary joy or satisfaction. And if we're constantly then looking for the next thing to make us happy, or you know, putting a Band-Aid on that unease that we're feeling by getting some stuff, we end up in this cycle of working and spending and chronic craving and dissatisfaction. In psychology, there's this concept I came across called the hedonic treadmill. After acquiring some kind of new possession or something, some highly, having some highly anticipated experience even, we in initially get this boost of energy. It's a, it's a jolt of dopamine. But then our level of happiness returns to what it was before. You might think how you felt initially when you got a new phone or a new car, if you can afford those things. On the one hand, you're moving up in the world because you've got this thing, this new thing. Yet the dopamine fades and emotionally it feels like we're right back where we were. Um, and the only thing we can do, at least that's, this is how we're conditioned, um, is to seek out the next thing. Get the, another jolt and then the next. And then the cycle continues. And it's really amazing how much emotional and mental energy can become focused on trying to get what we want. So in the process, you know, we're trying to satisfy our cravings and equally avoid our aversions. Um, in the process of that, there's this whirlwind of thoughts that we uh, have to confront. And it's related to habits of mind. And as I said, it, it, it seems to be amplified during the holidays. You know, unconsciously, there is this expectation that we're going to boost, get this boost when we buy things. We might be tempted to take advantage of all those holiday sales and buy stuff for ourselves. Um, then we can really get what we want rather than relying on somebody else to get it for us. But it's also, also in the context of giving and receiving gifts. Receiving gifts brings us pleasure. It's enjoyable, and especially when we get what we want. And, and giving gifts also is pleasurable. We can put so much care and thought into getting just the right thing for someone and yeah, and there's this trail of thoughts. How much should I spend? What if they spend more on me? That'll be awkward. Um, what if they don't like it? Will, will they like this um, ocean breeze scented candle? <laughs> and what if you get that? 
as a gift, right? You receive it. How do you react? Do you love it? Do you pretend to love it? Do you express gratitude? Do you decline and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, it's not for me. I'm allergic to that. Um, do you just take it and store it away and forget about it? Regift, donate, pass it on? Recently, my husband Tom and I were having a conversation with some good friends um, about this, this very topic. <laughs> and um, uh, they shared the story of um, a few years back receiving this very expensive, very luxurious du down, goose down duvet blanket from a close family member. And these friends of ours are very environmentally conscious um, and they're, they eat mostly a vegan diet. Um, and upon opening the present, um, one of them said something like this, do you even know who we are? Great, I can feel all warm and toasty in my bed knowing that these geese have been tortured you know, to make me comfortable. And he said that out loud. Um, and yeah, he was being honest on the one hand, you can say, but on, on the other, that, that response no doubt really hurt. I, I uh, and this kind of, this example kind of ties in with uh, a Hidden Brain podcast uh, that I listened to recently on the, on, on the topic of what's called emotional currency. Um, this is with uh, Shankara Vedantam. Yeah, it's titled Emotional Currency. And what I learned is that there is uh, anthropological research that shows we're really hardwired to treat gift giving and receiving as a mutual obligation. Going back in time, before we humans had money, before we exchanged money, we exchanged things. You know, I'll give you a pig if you give me a chicken. And that wasn't just a transaction in that one moment, but it was also the forming of a bond, a kind, a kind of social bond. And there's a, a early 20th century French anthropologist named Marcel Mauss, who argued that um, there's not there's an obligation to give. There's an obligation to give. There's an obligation to receive, and then there's also the obligation to reciprocate. And this is shown in early human societies dating back five thousand years ago. So when someone gives you a gift, in part they're telling you, here's something nice for you, but at the same time, it's also establishing a relationship that implicitly says, down the line, you're going to do something nice for me. So no wonder there's all this uh, mental and, and emotional energy that we can experience around um, buying gifts, giving and receiving. It's part of our, our conditioning. Uh, 
another uh, dimension of that is when the, when the holidays end and, and we might have this awful feeling that, you know, we have this new mound of stuff and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know where to put it. It can feel like a lot of clutter that's just piling up over time. What do we do with it? And on this, um, I can share another personal story. Um, Tom and I experience some frustrations in this area uh, around Christmas gift giving with our family. And we, we got to a point, and this was years ago, where we felt like we don't need anything. You know, um, we have everything we need. We, we, you know, let's, um, you know, let's not have Christmas feel like this exchange, this transaction. Let's just get together, no gifts. Let's just get together and enjoy com our company and have a really nice meal together. So we actually proposed that to our family. And that didn't go over very well. <laughs> there was a lot of resistance. Um, you know, Christmas isn't Christmas without gifts. It's fun also to give and receive. And it is. Um, and then, yeah, this anthropological research shows that it's, there's more to it, right? That, that there's this hardwiring there. Um, so in the end, uh, you know, what we did is we agreed that we would just, just focus on the kids our niece and nephew. So no, no gifts for the adults, just the kids. So Tom and I bought presents for them and none of the adults as we had agreed. Uh, <laughs> but sure enough, <laughs> under the Christmas tree, there were gifts, there were packages with our names on them. And they were gifts from the kids <laughs> who were too young to go shopping on their own, <laughs> too young to drive, right? And also there were gifts from the dogs. <laughs> so now, you know, uh, we've learned over time to find the, the, the middle way. Um, now we, we give, give a, a wish list that um, includes um, things that are incredibly practical that, that we do use regularly, you know. Oh, I need some more toothpaste. Let's put that on the list, <laughs> right? Um, seriously, <laughs> it'll get wrapped up. <laughs> Um, so yeah, now we get like a, you know, beautifully wrapped box of laundry detergent from Theo, the German shepherd. <laughs> yeah, that was a good, good resolution. Now I'm going to, um, shift gears just a little bit, kind of broaden out here and, and read a short e excerpt from Charlotte excuse me, Charlotte Joko Beck in her most recent book, Ordinary Wonder, Zen Life and Practice. And it's, a, it's from a chapter entitled 99.4% of Our Problems. And in it, she points to the ultimate source of our cravings and the general feeling of dissatisfaction that we have. Of course, that's our attachment to self. She says, most of us have this one basic question. How can I have a life that makes some sense, that feels good in a certain sense and is, and is meaningful 
or satisfactory to me? It's a fine question, but why does it seem so hard to solve? Something almost always bothers us. If it isn't people, it's situations, or the economy, or the election, or something somewhere. Or if nothing bothers us at the moment, there is always the hidden little idea that maybe this won't continue. And it probably won't. We buy stuff, a lot of stuff, and that can be fun for a moment. But most of us who practice are pretty clear that's not the answer. Of course, what she's talking about is, is dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali term for suffering, often translated as dissatisfaction. And it includes a whole range of mind-body states where we may feel um, unrest, unease, discomfort, anxiety, grief, sadness, misery, despair, and, and not just unpleasant feelings and sensations, um, but everything, everything that's tangible and mental or emotional that's subject to change, to impermanence, anything that, that, that arises and passes, which is everything and everyone. In his first discourse, the Buddha presented the Four Noble Truths, that suffering exists, that it arises from causes and conditions, and that is the clinging to the delusion of a separate self that thinks it's lacking something. Also that suffering can be relieved by removing those causes and conditions and that there's a way to remove them. And that way is Zazen. Most of us probably come to practice motivated by the feeling like we're lacking something, that our life should be better than it is. And sometimes it's directly related to some pain we experienced through a sudden change in our life. It could be a change in our health, our employment, a relationship. Um, on the other hand, um, it could also just be this general vague feeling of anxiety about the future. A sense that our life's not headed in the right direction. Feel, feeling bored in a rut. What's it all for? And so we find ourselves taking steps to try to bring about happiness, to try to make some positive change, change our outlook. And often we do this unconsciously. And it could be that we do it by buying new things. That's what the wider culture is telling us will bring us happiness. But also, you know, yeah, we start exercising more, uh, move to a different place, enroll in a new class, start a new job, a new relationship. 
And we especially might do this around the start of the, the new year, um, at the New Year's Eve holiday where we um, make vows. And, and we're just, when we do that, we're just, we're just filled with expectations. We want results. We want to change an outlook, a healthier body. And trying to break away from bad habits um, and, or bring forth new, more healthier ones, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but what, what becomes problematic is when we get attached to results. We get attached to having certain expectations. Yesterday we had an introductory workshop here, um, which itself is an opportunity to make a, a fresh start. That's what it felt like for me when I did it um, some 20 or so years ago. Um, and whether you're brand new or even if you're a seasoned practitioner, there is this risk that we make the practice, the sitting practice, into a thing where we objectify it and um, want to see certain results. We want to see change. We might even get really frustrated that we're not seeing results and give up. Um, nothing's happening. Right? This, this isn't even worth my time. What am I doing? Um, but actually, there are real, tangible results that come. Um, they may not come right away, though. Um, through daily practice, um, we do find ourselves, over time, gradually, opening up, becoming less judgmental, becoming more generous, a better listener, being there for others. And sometimes it's, we don't re even realize that this change is happening. Right? It's, but other people notice it in us. It might be our teacher or our friends or family. Okay, um, back, back to Joko. Again, she was pointing out um, this question we all have. Um, how can I achieve a life that feels good and is meaningful? Yeah, and sometimes we go chasing all these things uh, outside ourselves to answer that question. And we do that for a while before we get fed up. And then, only then, we might turn inward. She says, being human with the, with the amazing minds that we have, we begin looking for an answer to this question. We're hoping for some magical understanding, some vision of life, and some great experience that's going to do it. Again, that uh, results-seeking, wanting mind. A Zen monk once asked the great teacher, Dazu Fuhei, what is great nirvana? The monk was asking the same question we're all asking. What is the great, wonderful answer? The teacher replied, not to commit oneself to the karma of birth and death is great nirvana. 
in other words, not to commit to this, this cycle of constant craving. The monk continued, what then is the karma of birth and death? And the teacher answered, to desire the great nirvana is the karma of birth and death. Don't get caught on the word karma. Dazu Huhe is just saying to desire this great answer is the great mistake. But we all desire a great answer. So what are we going to do? Our life doesn't quite suit us. We want an answer. And the answer is saying that just wanting the answer itself is your mistake. Where does that leave us? More annoyed than ever. <laughs> yeah, we're so habituated to chasing after things. Again, we want, want the answer, we want the results. And we all have this deep abiding desire for, for a fulfilling life, for completion. But we keep looking in the wrong place. She continues. I have an old book that I used to pour over many years ago. It's so old, it was photocopied and is hardly holding together. It's by an English philosopher who called himself Wei Wu Wei for, for whatever reason. He wrote that 99.4% of our problems come from a concern for the self. And there isn't any self. Another way of saying this is that all our problems are versions of, quote, myself is disturbed by what other selves are doing, end quote. And there aren't any other selves. Or we might say, myself wants the things that others have, but there aren't any other selves out there with things. Our true self is no self. There's no giver and no receiver. When we're giving, there's just, just the giving. There's a, a parable in um, this book that Roshi often uses, and he highly recommended it to me. It's called Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart. And it is, it is a wonderful book. It's a collection of of stories from different cultures across time. And um, these stories um, all reflect um, different spiritual journeys. So they can really speak to us, they're, they're timeless. And there's one about uh, a fisherman that I'm gonna share, and, and some of you might even remember hearing it before, but it's timely right now. And this is how it goes. The rich industrialists and the, the, the rich industrialists from the north was horrified to find the southern fisherman lying lazily beside his boat, smoking a pipe. Why aren't you out fishing? said the industrialist. 
because I have caught enough fish for the day, said the fisherman. Why don't you catch some more? Why would I do that? You can earn money. With that, you could have a motor fixed to your boat to go into deeper waters and catch more fish. Then you would make enough money to buy nylon nets. These would bring you more fish and more money. Soon, you would have enough money to own two boats, maybe even a fleet of boats. Then you would be a rich man like me. The fisherman said, well, what would I do then? Then you would really enjoy life. And the fisherman said, what do you think I'm doing now? So much of our frustration, our dissatisfaction comes from our tendency to look outward, to look to gain or get more instead of resting right where we are. And fortunately, we have this practice that helps us to learn how to recognize, how to loosen and free ourselves from that cycle of constant craving and grasping. Not pursuing our cra cravings, but at the same time, not renouncing them. Now, taking the middle way by not, by not indulging, but also not denying. Simply being and beholding and yeah, resting in the fullness of life that is right here in the every moment. It's, it's the difference between being fixated on getting somewhere or getting something and a mind that's wide open, wide open to the unconditional wonder that's right in front of us. And that's how we can truly enjoy the holidays. First, by keeping up with our sitting practice the best we can. And if we fall off course, um, we don't have to wait until New Year's to pick it back up as soon as we notice. And it it's really is daily sitting that keeps us grounded and less likely to go off the rails in the first place with all those temptations, uh, all those pleasures that are put before us. And we can really enjoy the sights and sounds and tastes of the season, enjoy group gatherings and gift giving and receiving. Um, as long as we have that presence of mind, we're a lot less likely to overdo it. And there, there's no one formula for the middle way. Um, but keeping our sing practice up um, will go a long way in helping us figure that out. So in, in taking the middle way, we can also enter into the marketplace, right? We don't need to all out reject consumerism and holiday excess, um, but we also don't need to be controlled by them. 
Um, we have to pay attention to our thoughts and feelings and behaviors and practice helps us to do that. And, and let's also recognize and make peace with the fact that um, it's a natural human impulse to seek pleasure in things and experiences. We shouldn't beat ourselves up about it. And yeah, in practical terms, rewards keep us going. Keeps, they keep us motivated. Um, but yeah, we want to avoid, obviously, acting on impulse. Uh, avoid acting based on judgments of ourselves and others. And it's pretty clear that this uh, consumerist culture that we live in isn't going to go away anytime soon. Not one of us individually created it and not one of us individually can dismantle it. But if we get fixated on it, um, then, um, then we're just creating separation. It's about, you know, just be cultivating that awareness of the impacts it has on our life, our community, and our planet, um, and, and making choices accordingly. We can choose to limit our exposure to all the messages we're bombarded with and just not give them the mental space. I'm going to uh, close with some wise words from a French philosopher, Simone Vieil. And this is what she said. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. In any moment, we have the ability to close the gap that separates us sheerly through where we place our attention. And it's the, the most generous gift we can give to ourselves and to others. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.